Movement Rio Media presents A Few Good Physios with Dr. Eric Munoz and Dr. Leonidas Scantolides. You can't handle the truth. What is physical therapy? More research. More research. True therapeutic effect. Join us each week as we discuss current trends in medicine, rehabilitation, and strength and conditioning. The answers are out there. All content is a collaboration between On Point Sports Care and Integrated PT Squared. A Few Good Physios is not medical advice and is used for educational purposes only. If you are having pain and or health-related complaints, please seek out a licensed healthcare professional. Thank you for downloading. Enjoy. Cool. All right. So this is uh, our first podcast, and the, the name of the podcast is "A Few Good Physios" uh, with Dr. Eric Munoz and Leonidas Skintlides. Uh We're both physical therapists, and our backgrounds are in uh, strength training, physical therapy, uh, and our main goal today is to talk about introductions and what we're doing and why we're doing it. So we're going to kind of go back and forth today and, and talk about where we came from and how we got to where we are right now. And I think the main thing to talk about first off is why we're doing this. We we uh, we would always have conversations about our industry of physical therapy and strength training, and it would turn into this really long, drawn out, uh, <laughs> sometimes uh, you know, a philosophical conversation about where we are and and where our industry is going and where the faults are and everything and. Um, obviously the successes, things like that. But uh, the main thing is, wow, we, you know, there's a lot to talk about, and we were wanted to give this information as, as readily as possible to as many people as possible. We, so we thought we would start with a podcast. Um, and we want to take, you know, kind of three-prong approach where we have our background, um, our clinical experience, and um, kind of our own journey of uh, getting into the industry. So I think, uh, that was a, a big part of it. If you wanted to add to that. Yes. So uh, piggybacking on Lee's, uh, intro, my name is, uh, Eric Munoz, uh, physical therapist and, um, work in the strength and conditioning world as well. As Lee mentioned, this was definitely, uh, spoken about for a while. Uh, Lee and I had very similar backgrounds getting into PT school. That's where we met. So our journey began um, and how different uh, world, uh, different worlds we saw with, with fitness and physical therapy, and both the the success of both industries and and the shortcomings, and often the disconnect. So yeah, the three pronged attack is our our experience, uh, the industry, and hopefully in the future getting uh, different guests to kind of elaborate on on the things they've gone through. Uh, but this is going to be for geared toward other clinicians, uh, patients, or anybody interested in either uh, fitness and or physical therapy. Uh, we hope to provide some um, some good clinical information, uh, our clini- clinical experiences, and most importantly, to learn ourselves um, to kind of go through this dialogue. But uh, Lee, why don't you let us know, uh, just give us a bit of your background. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing too, we w- we wanted to make this as a little um, unrehearsed as possible. So, right. 
that was one thing we talked about too is that a lot of the you know not to bash any other uh, people in our industry but they seem to be a little bit confined you know when they talk about this stuff and and we don't want to do that and the reason why is because we're trying to give as much information as possible within the realm of uh, keeping it kosher right and, um, and confined being um, you know not open to um, new and exciting information that's all around us um, mm. unfortunately when when someone gets involved in any career you know we learn from you know our mentors from school from our own experience and we uh, often get into a little safe box. And um, when it comes to treating patients or training clients, uh, you know, every individual is different. And the more tools you have, the better off uh, your success rate or just your, your connection with the patient or client. So, mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we thought it would be good to share where we came from and, and why we got into physical therapy and even our own unique reasons why we're staying in physical therapy. So on and so forth. Because <laughs> a lot of people don't ma make it and they don't stay in it, right. um, which we'll talk about later in future podcasts. Um, I hail from uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I don't have a Boston accent, even though everyone asks me that when I say I'm from Massachusetts. But it does come out on several occasions. I think, uh, one, if I drink enough. Uh, <laughs> two, if I'm with my family and I hear my oldest sister talk because she has a really heavy duty so uh it's her and her husband and her kids um and they, they influenced me to, to speak that way um but yeah so i come from massachusetts i have two older sisters uh and my parents and uh my my mother is irish or she's half irish half scottish my father is greek that's why i have a long drawn out name leonidas si puppy nunda scantilides which is uh a hand or a mouthful, I should say, and my old <laughs> my, <laughs> my older sister always always makes a joke. She says uh, whenever uh, uh, someone outside the family un no, learns my name, she's like, "I wonder if he's Greek or not." You know, I don't know if he's got enough Greek names. In it. Anyways, um, so originally I was I was born in Boston, raised in Newton, Massachusetts, up until high school. Um, so while I was in Newton. Just to talk about uh, in terms of athletic activities that I did, I was a very overactive kid, meaning or hi hyperactive, I should say. So both of my parents realized this pretty soon, and they threw me in as many sports as they could. <clears throat> and I did, um, I don't know, countless different. I did gymnastics. Uh, at one point, I did ballet for like a couple of years. I was in the <laughs> I was in Boston Ballet. I was in the Nutcracker a couple times. Uh, again, heavily influenced by my older sisters, um, and I moved on to soccer. And it wasn't really until I did um, Weichiru Karate when I was six years old, um, and that really changed my hyperactivity. And the, the reason is because you have to be very disciplined to do any sort of martial art. And typically the instructors don't want you running around with, like, a maniac and, like, throw your belt in there and shit like that. So um, the first class, I'll never forget, uh, I, I wasn't paying attention to the instructor. He just had me sit on the side and... He basically said that you're not going to participate until you can basically listen and follow an order and everything like that. So that went on for several months. And you just every sat on the sides? I just sat on the side. <laughs> and every time my parents came to pick me up, 
Uh, my mom would be like, how was class? I'd be like, oh, it was great. And it wasn't until maybe like six weeks. I, I, I don't remember exactly, but I would say a couple of months. She was like, you know, what are you learning? What are you doing? I was like, I'm just sitting on the side. And she's like, what do you mean? And so she finally talked to the instructor and he explained to her that, you know, I was being um, a little rambunctious and I, I can't participate in class. So and my mother's an old school parent, uh, just I think just like Eric's parents, um, where she was like, oh, then you, you sit on the side until you can actually, you know, participate, pay attention in class. The instructor is going to, you know, uh, is always right. So anyway, so I finally calmed down and I participated and uh, I, I listened and that kind of changed my whole perspective on uh, activity and everything. So that was like the beginning of learning how to be disciplined. And that was a huge outlet for me. Um, as time went on, uh, I continued other sports. I, I played soccer, baseball, like all the basic youth league things. Uh, I really got into soccer. I think I, I really took to kicking. Uh, that was like one of my favorite First experience with kicking. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I did with you karate up until about 14 years old, and that was when we moved, actually. We moved to another town in Massachusetts called Linfield, Mass., um, my parents helped me look for another martial arts school because that was my biggest interest in activity. And we couldn't find another Weichiru Karate school, but they did find a Taekwondo school. And it was called uh, Bruce McCoy's Martial Arts in Peabody. And they're still there to this day. And I remember um, meeting with the head instructor, the master instructor, Bruce McCoy, um, and my parents said, like, you know, I, I went all the way up to Brown Belt in Weichiru Karate. And they warned me, like, you're probably not going to be able to start as a brown belt in Taekwondo. This is a very different martial art. And so when I sat down with the instructor, one of the first things he says after him and my parents interact for a little while, he's like, well, you don't look like a wise ass. (laughs) How old were you at that point? I was 14. Wow. Yeah, and I, I was very respectful. And again, I, I, up you know from six to fourteen, getting that experience from which you karate, I knew the routine. You know, you don't you know, you don't talk out of line. It was very militaristic, and um, you you sir and ma'am the instructors, especially the adults. So um, I started there a complete beginning. I was a white belt, um, and I went all the way up through uh, eighteen years old. And I got my black belt from Bruce McCord, my first degree black belt from him. Uh, and all throughout high school, I did other sports. I continued to play soccer. I did uh, track. In track, I ran like 100 meter, and I did long jump, so kind of the short, fast sport uh, events. And then um, I also did ice hockey for a little while. I, I uh, Yeah, that was pretty much it. And so... Um, and it wasn't until I was a red belt, so right before I became a black belt, I competed for the first time in sparring. I got my ass completely handed to me. Uh, what, you, what age? I was probably 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it went in there like, a, you know, so egotistical, thinking that I was going to do well. I mean, I remember in, in class, I was doing well against like people who were our age, like, you know, 40 years old, you know, late 30s. And, I felt like I was going to just kill the competition. And when I went there, there were three other competitors in my belt and age group. And they all were really tall, really skinny. And I had just started to do weightlifting at that time, so I was a little bit bigger. So I you know, looked at them, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do really well. And they each, each one of them just c- completely dismantled what I could do. And I probably 
got knocked down to the ground and maybe some concussion. I don't remember. There was no head contact. It wasn't supposed to be, but I remember I got hit in the head a couple of times. Um, but anyway, so I came in completely last. I, everybody else meddled except for myself. So that was a huge blow to like, all right, you got to do something different. You know, you're, you're, you're not doing well with this. You might be doing well on this end. But um, I, I was able to talk to the head instructor at the time who wasn't Bruce McCorry. It was a, uh, another guy who was, who was a um, state champion. He was really, really good. And they they devised uh, a competition class for a bunch of us. And they're like, you guys have to train a little bit differently. You're going to have to go a little harder. You're going to have to um, start. If you really want to compete regularly, you're going to have to focus more on it while you, while you train in class. Anyway, so that was like the beginning of um, the martial arts competition for me in Taekwondo. Uh, and then when I... Uh, graduated high school that was kind of my next um chapter in that because I was already a black belt and I was able to compete in black belt competitions um so I, w I competed a little bit under an underneath another instructor uh his name was Grandmaster Chang H. Choi in Springfield Mass and I did a couple of state competitions um and a couple of regional competitions there I did okay I definitely did not medal or um you know, take any championships home. That was a, another learning experience for me. But I, I did better than I did when I first competed in high school. Now, at this time, in Springfield College, I was studying uh, rehabilitation and disability studies because, uh, to backtrack a little bit, in high school, I had no idea what to do. Wasn't doing fantastic grade-wise. Um, but I did know that, you know, as my parents told me, you do have to go to college <laughs> if you want to have a job if you want to not live in this house for the rest of your life you have to go to college um and that was a kind of a, a little rule that both me and my sisters knew going out so we all went to college or at least try to you know so um as some advice from my oldest sister uh i pursued uh to go into physical therapy but after doing some shadowing uh, through my oldest sister, she was able to help me out through a friend of hers who did physical therapy. And it, it looked interesting. As I looked through the program of applications, I realized I didn't have the grades for it, but Springfield College was able to accept me into the Rehabilitation Disability Studies program and said, if you complete four years, you finish this degree, then you can apply to their master's program of, of physical therapy and then you know go from there. And, and, and that would be another three years? I think maybe two. That's a good question. I I want to say it's got to be three. They had this combined program. So if you go right from high school, and you go to their combined program, which was like the most you know everybody wanted to do that. So it was very mm. competitive. It was five years. You end up with a master's in physical therapy, and you had your undergrad. I think in health, a, a sports science, science maybe or health science. I think so. Um, and they were one of the few that had this program at the time so it was it was very unique and they were known they're still known for their their health sciences and still known for f physical therapy it's now the doctorate though um so i was there for only two years uh trained under chang h Choi, grandmaster chang h Choi for that two years uh actually helped teach some classes with him as i studied rehabilitation disability studies but i didn't really uh connect with it it was a lot of law and, and a lot of theory and a lot of psychology I was more, I was really, I, at that point I started to learn I wanted to apply this knowledge of movement versus kind of study the background of other things like law and, and psychology. So I had a buddy who went to University of Colorado at Boulder 
he was uh, a freshman there, an undergrad. He was telling me how great it was. He loved it. My parents and I investigated and, and found that they had a kinesiology program. Um, and uh, it was actually kinesiology and applied physiology. And it turned out that we were the last graduating class for that once we finished. Anyway, so I transferred there, went there, and I started to study Taekwondo <clears throat> underneath uh, this gentleman named Ian Mitchell. And he was an Olympic competitor, uh, I believe, through the 80s and the 90s. And he his history was really interesting. He, he uh, was the first American junior Olympic champion mm. um, for Taekwondo. Um, so he was the youngest, and I think he was the first junior American. Uh, he was born and raised in Colorado, and he was retired from the sport when he was teaching us. He was actually in law school at the time. Oh, wow. Um, Totally different training. We were there. All we were doing was training for sparring. Before, it was, you know, forms training, weapons training, um, technique training, then a little bit of sparring. Now, this was just all sparring. And he, he brought the program that they used for the Olympic Training Center to us. Right. And so they had a lot of young people. You know, it was all college kids, a lot of black belts. I was lucky enough to be amongst people who competed at the world level, competed at adult nationals and stuff like that. So, um, and so it was it was fantastic. Totally took to it, um, and uh, we did my first collegiate national competition in two thousand one. Um, I think it was two thousand one. No, no, I'm sorry, it was two thousand in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, and this was a little bit of a different game for me because I never competed in a, any sort of national competition. All I competed was at state and regional competitions. And all these people were very young. And, and they most of them, to uh, qualify for collegiate nationals, all you have to do is – not all you have to do. You have to maintain a, a minimum of 12 credits per year at a college. Mm. And then you can train as much as you want. So some of these guys who were really serious about it, like Olympians, they would go to a school for 12 credits – train eight hours a day, sometimes a little bit more than that, and then um, kind of dominate the competition there. And the uh, my my first match, I remember, my first two matches I won, and my I, I did very well, and then I went up against somebody uh, who I ended up fighting a couple of years in a row, and he just decimated me, and uh, he was a, a guy from Texas, I remember, and he did I was explained later what he was doing. Like in, in Taekwondo, the main points are kicking to the chest, kicking to the head, mm. punching to the chest, and then you, you accumulate points that way uh, versus you knocking somebody out and finishing the match. Um, so he didn't even accumulate points in the sense of like trying to attack my uh, chest protector or my head. He first tried to just knock out my hips. So he just basically kicked the front of my hips and made them really weak so I couldn't lift my legs and then scored a couple of points and then fit, won the match. Mm, so the whole strategy. thing was like, I'm going to rest for this <laughs> and get ready for the final match. So it was, it was, anyway, so it was really uh, it was an interesting experience, but uh, a good experience nonetheless. Um, so at this point, after about a year, I was lucky enough to be nominated captain of the Taekwondo team because they had kind of, you know, everybody was, people would graduate and leave, come in, come out. Um, and the team nom and the coach nominated myself to be the captain. And uh, I, I competed every year after that, did fairly well, and uh, finished my degree in kinesiology and applied physiology. Had no idea what I wanted to do with it. <clears throat> so I'm here asking what I should do with it. And I had some advice 
Uh, or you could either go back to school, get your PhD, start teaching, or you could start right off the bat and become a strength coach, become a high school coach, um, stuff like that for strength conditioning. So I, 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 through the advice of one of my sisters again, I checked out Equinox in New York. And mm. uh, it, I met with this really incredible personal training manager. His name was Michael Mayer Segan. And at the time, he was heading up one of the locations in uh, Midtown. And he met with me, gave me a long interview, and he said, we'd love to have you. You have the good athletic background. You got the, um, you know, you're studying kinesiology, applied physiology, be a great addition to the team. So I started working for them, for them uh, right out of school. It was around 2003 when I graduated. Mm-hmm. So then I started working for them full-time. Uh, and I went through the whole training system. So they have the tier system, tier one through three. Went through all the way up to three. And it kind of led me to um, what we've talked about before, getting these clients who were a little bit more advanced and who wanted uh, trainers who knew what they were doing to work with them. So either they came from previous injuries or they were uh, preparing for a pretty advanced sport. I had rock climbers. I remember power lifters, um, all these people who were like, you got to you know, get me stronger. Yeah, I, I should be able to you know, do a complete hike at uh, Pike's Peak in six weeks or something like that. (laughs) And um, through all this, I did meet a lot of physical therapists. I've met a lot of people in the rehab field because I would communicate them for the prospective clients. So and one of those uh, physical therapists were uh, Tom Guyman. So Tom Guyman, he had his own practice on the Upper West Side, and he saw... Uh, one of my clients for an evaluation, and mind you, I, I've had you know had a numerous amount of injuries up to this point. Competitive taekwondo, also soccer, all these other things. I injured myself a bunch of times, and I, I've probably had physical therapy a handful of those times. But I didn't really, I wasn't really paying attention to what they were doing. But for the most part, it consisted of these passive treatments, mm-hmm. so ice, electrical stim, heat, stretching, therabands, all all these things. Reading. I, I, and right, reading, <laughs> reading, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, none of that. It was all just uh, hanging out. But uh, yeah, it w- and it, one thing you know that that's so important is that I wasn't learning what I could do for myself in the sense that all right, you have this. This is you know I'm going to give you the information about your injury. This is how it happened. This is what you could do for it. six weeks weeks from now. It's more like you're injured. This is what you got to do right now. And basically, I didn't come away with, like, any sort of empowering feelings. It was more like I felt worse about the situation. Now I have a bad shoulder in my head. I have a bad ankle or whatever. So um, I have that in, uh, in my head, and I, I have this client who sees Tom Guyman for an evaluation, does a full examination. I was very impressed by, you know, this uh, methodical uh, evaluation of this person's injury. And then he comes away with a clear assessment, educates educates the patient on what happened, why it might have happened, and what they can do for it now, what I could help them do for, you know, the coming weeks. So that was really cool to me because that was the first time I saw that, like, he prescribed specific exercises. He found specific things that were going on with her movements, with her ranges of motions, her strength and weaknesses and stuff like that. And he put it all together like a puzzle. And I, that's what I really attracted to me. I was like, wow, this is something that is is worth knowing, especially if you want to work with people in this field in terms of movement. 
So uh, after that, I, I asked him his advice on what I might do for that. And he didn't know me that well at that time. So he was a little skeptical. He kind of said, like, well, you have to get into physical therapy school first. And there's some things you have to do for that. And so him and I kept talking over the course of several weeks. And he seemed to get it that I was a little bit more serious rather than just, like, running my mouth or, like, you know, trying to impress him or whatever. Uh, so he's like, well, you know, you have to fulfill these basic application requirements. You have to uh, do some observational volunteer work, uh, you know, usually in a hospital setting and also an outpatient setting, depending on what the school uh, requires. <clears throat> so he he guided me to uh, Mount Sinai for the observational time. <clears throat> and I met up with the team with the traumatic brain and the spinal cord injury unit. And I was there for a long time. I was there for like six months. Um, because I wasn't able to put in a lot, a lot of time per week, so I was able to like three hours here, three hours there, and I was so impressed once again by their knowledge, their skill, their ability to help these people who had incredible circumstances that either were recovering from a really bad brain injury, really bad spinal cord injury, and so that just furthered my drive to want to do it. And I was like, maybe I want to start in a hospital if I get into physical therapy school. And then the other thing was I had to do some prerequisites. I had to, even though I had my, um, I had my Kines undergrad, uh, it didn't complete. Like there were some different chemistry courses that they require, different biology courses, and I think there was one more. Might it might have been a different statistic course or something. So I, it took a you know two to three years for all that to occur. The volunteer, the um, uh, the prereqs. And then I was able to even apply to school. So then I applied to three different schools, Hunter College, Turo, and LIU. I got into uh, Turo, and that's where I met Eric. Uh, we started school in 2007, graduated in 2010. All the while, um, you know, I, we, were, we were working. We had our own training business going on. Uh, I was also teaching Taekwondo at a school in Manhattan. I had been doing that for a long time. I was... I was teaching adult classes, kids' classes, competition classes. I was teaching about 12 classes a week right before school started, and I had to whittle that down to just a couple. And then um, then while during school, I was able to still teach a little, still train a little, still maintain some income for everything that we needed to, to live. And then uh, graduated in 2010 and started to progress into physical therapy. So it's kind Very of a cool. quick background there. Well. Uh, definitely, there's a lot of similarities in my story. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Eric, and um, I'm a born and bred uh, New Yorker. Uh, both of my parents are of Puerto Rican descent. Mom was born here in New York. Uh, Dad was born in Puerto Rico, but lived here after two. Um, half of my parent grandparents were born here, half were born there. But uh, a true, uh, again, born and bred New Yorican, I would say. <laughs> Uh, I was born in Upper Manhattan. My parents, um, I lived in Washington Heights for about 10 years. Um, I was a very curious kid, and my parents really kind of let me discover, you know, whatever I was interested in, they would put me in. And similar to Lee, I mean, I I took a gymnastics class for a while. I took some... Some dance as well. No ballet, uh, though. No ballet. I didn't know Boston, <laughs> no New York ballet. Uh, I took some uh, piano classes in my uh, in my building. Ah. Uh, soccer as well. That was a short uh, one year thing. Um, so as a young kid, I wasn't. I wouldn't call myself athletic. Um, 
academically, I, I think I did well without trying too hard. Uh, so I was lucky in that sense. My parents moved, um, moved all of us, actually, my brother and I, um, to Throsneck in the Bronx. That's where things got a little more athletic, I would say. Um, a lot of street basketball. Uh, I wouldn't say organized sports until later in high school, but um, used to play football, basketball, wrestle, <laughs> all kind of uh, – Things that guys do, I guess, when they're ten, eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big shifts in my uh, in my life in an early age, about eleven or twelve, a Bronx Kempo Academy opened up about two blocks from my house, and mm-hmm. I'll never forget reading the Bronx Time Reporter, and there was an article there. There was an advertisement, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Ma, you know." What do you think of this? And she was like, "Are you interested?" I said, "Yeah." So she enrolled. So they wrote up. They wrote it up in the the paper. Yeah, the, the paper was an. Ad, well, actually, um, yeah, the school the, the school had an advertisement in the local newspaper, mm-hmm. and there was like a special one month, some special of some sort. Mm-hmm. And my brother, uh, my mother enrolled my brother and I, and uh, that was uh, the beginning of uh, you know I, I joke around. I'm, half-heartedly joke around that I was the most focused while I was taking karate because mm-hmm. um, I spent about three and a half, four years taking uh, American Kempo karate. Um, my sensei at the time was Rob Soma, and mm-hmm. he was a young guy. He was like 22, 23 at the time. And oh at, the, at the time, he seemed like... Um, 40. 40, right, <laughs> 50. You know, he, he was like an older guy. He was a second or third degree black belt. Wow. He looked like uh, Bon Jovi. He was this long hair, and it was and his he, school. It was his school. Wow, small school. He he headed it up, and then he had one head instructor, uh, Rob Persico, who's now an NYPD. I, he might be retired at this point, mm. but he was a brown belt, and he was another one of the head instructors. So my brother and I went through the program, um, and I would say I, I got up to a blue belt. I so it was what. White, yellow, orange, and blue. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started instructing at, I, I was probably about 12 or 13, and I started instructing with the children program. But the school was kind of, um, it was interesting. Um, we had, as Lee mentioned, uh, technique, uh, self-defense, mm-hmm. um, kata or forms. Um, and then there was a sparring part of the workout. And the sparring evolved into... <laughs> this uh, kind of no holes barred it, without MMA, kind of an MMA before its time, I guess. Um, <laughs> MMA on a Saturday, so uh-huh. either the first person to drop or the first person to just say no more. Oh my god! So it was kind of unscripted. Looking back at it, it was kind of crazy because you know I was working with guys my age, but also older. It was just a, a collage of different characters at the gym, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, it was a, that was my first introduction to discipline, I believe. Um, uh, and it really helped me in middle school. You know, I went to a public school in middle school. And, you know, there were some characters, and I was in a... Yeah, there were some characters, and I guess uh, one of my biggest challenges at in seventh grade was um, having to go for a demonstration. My Kempo school gave a demonstration to school? the school. Yeah, Ooh, so I was on this uh, the demo team of Kempo Karate. Nice. And uh, we had, it was like eight of us, and we had to give this whole thing on katas, and we did a little sparring. So the whole school knew 
<laughs> you did. And I did Kempo. Kempo. So it was a blessing and a curse. Yeah, that usually doesn't work out so well. No. So I was approached a handful of times by some guys. And and, and this, I kind of um, de-escalated it many times over. But luckily, it, nothing ever evolved. Let's put it that way. What's the word that we like to use? Oh, God, I can't remember. You're thinking of a mirror? Uh, yeah, thinking of a mirror. Neutralize. Neutralize. Neutralize, neutralize the situation. The situation. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you something off the off the record here. But um, <laughs> but anyway, so middle school, karate, um, academics, street, I say street sports. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so playing with the, the, the guys in my neighborhood. High school... Um, my, I was fortunate enough in high school to have a decision, actually. My parents said, hey, you can go to public school or you can go to uh, private school. And uh, I took a test, and I just had a feeling that I, I wanted to go to private school. Uh, and it was probably one of the best decisions I made in my life. Um, I went to Cardinal Spelman High School, and freshman year, I kind of dropped, midway through, I kind of dropped karate. Um just because of academics, and I wanted to get into a track team. I got on a track team. I, wa- mm-hmm. I actually ran the four, the 800-meter, and a relay. I only went to, like— Really, middle two, distance. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I was probably one of the slower guys on the team, but um, the football team recommended that all the guys take track. Mm-hmm. So it really was partially—it it was really to get into the football team. Okay. Um, so— that was freshman year, and then uh, sophomore year and junior year, I was on the football team. Uh, that was cool. Um, really, again, the balance between, you know, sports and academics and having the discipline. I just remember getting home at, like, you know, 8 or 9 o'clock and being exhausted mm-hmm. and having my mother and my father say, hey, it's going to pay off. You know, you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of encouragement from my parents early on. Um Fast forward during during uh, football, my first experience with physical therapy mm-hmm. was uh, from I tore all the major ligaments in my uh, left ankle, or mm-hmm. so I was told. During mm-hmm. my third or fourth game, um, had to be carried off the field. Who? Yeah, who? Who, who diagnosed uh, the tear? Oh, this was this was an orthopedist ah. two blocks from my uh, my apart my house. Okay. Uh, got an MRI. That was a crazy experience with banging magnetic banging noises and being in a, in a coffin coffin uh so that they put me in a this is a they put me in a cast oh that's right yeah uh, four weeks in a blows my hard cast crutches no one taught me how to use crutches i fell off a flight of fell down a flight of steps trying to crutch my way up just as a side note uh cast is unnecessary for torn ligaments yes that's a what. cast on a sprained ankle should be I should have sued him should have been <laughs> it should have been uh that's negligent but um I didn't know I right, was right. 14 15 at the time my ankle was just, you know humongous I really couldn't put weight on it right. I thought I broke my foot but uh anyhow so cast um had to scratch football had to go to I went to all of my practices in football and it was painful but hmm. fast forward that experience was gone um, after junior year. I really senior year. I really didn't play sports. Um, I was uh, kind of right on the edge. You know, I was doing well, okay in school, mm-hmm. looking to get out of school. And um, unlikely, I thought I knew what I wanted to do at high school. Um, 
I was set up to go a law enforcement track. Um, mm. Career day in high school. Um, I met an FBI agent, and I asked him how would I get on the in the agency, and he explained that you know they look for law and accounting degrees, but you know just get a bachelor's degree and get into law enforcement. So I only gra- I only applied to um, one college, which was John Jay College, which was the you know top school. for criminal justice in the Northeast. Um, After high school, I started there. Um, I took the NYPD NYPD exam. Mm -hmm. Um, I took the Marine um, exam. I had Sergeant Brown calling me uh, the summer of my graduation and uh, said that, you know, they could sign me up. And something told me that I was going to go to school first and then go to the military after you could take those exams right out of high school. Yes, yes. Uh, and the recruiter got me right out of high school. You know, I was they came to the high school, so I signed mm-hmm. some paperwork to take an exam. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, luckily I kind of put the military on pause. Mm-hmm. Went to John Jay. Two years into school, a year into school is when I started. I, I began my uh, career in fitness, and um, it happened accidentally. I wanted a free gym, gym membership while going to college. Mm-hmm. Um I was in. I was always into working out from about 15. Uh, I mentioned to Lee in the past, but one of my first gifts, uh, one of my best gifts at 13 or 14, was a uh, a weight a bench press. What would you call that? A bench with. It's the complete weightlifting prom workout. Correct. So yeah. So it's <laughs> knee leg extension, knee, bench press, yeah, barbell. knee extension, barbell, and a curling bar uh, filled with concrete or sand. So. <laughs> I was always into working out, got into college, and wanted to get a free membership in the city. Uh, went on an interview to get a front desk position at uh, New York Sports Club, and I said, hey, you know, you got a couple of years of college, seem like uh, you're into fitness, you know, you could become a personal trainer. You know, mm-hmm. we will support you, we'll put you through a training program, which doesn't really exist anymore, but um, New York Sports Club had a training program, and the first person I worked under was uh, Chris McGrath, who mm-hmm. I believe is still in the fitness industry, and he sat me down. He said, listen, you could you could think of this as a $7 an hour job, or you could think of this as a $100 an hour job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here we're going to pay you to kind of walk around, but think of it as advertising, you know, think of it as, you know, marketing time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a great job for you during school to make good money part-time. Uh, and things just took off. You know, I, I started in New York Sports Club in 1999. That was my second or third year of college. And um, I quickly rose through the rank. I realized that I did not want to do law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to. Uh, I just was studying the bureaucracy and, and the politics behind law enforcement. I just didn't want to be a pawn in that world. Uh, what was your major at this time in undergrad? Uh, my undergrad initially was criminal justice, mm-hmm. and then I transferred out of criminal justice into forensic psychology. Mm-hmm. So I still had the FBI. I still I, I wanted higher education. Mm-hmm. I always knew from a from my first year of college that I wanted to either get a master's or a doctoral degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I was going to be a psychologist at one point uh, that last year of school. So there was a lot while I was a trainer, while I was finishing up my undergrad, there was definitely some uncertainty. Right. Um, 
that changed uh, once I met Bronwyn Spira. Mm. Uh, Bronwyn, Bronwyn was um, given to me from the club as a personal training client. And after two sessions, she started naming muscles. And I said, hey, what do you do for work? And she said, I'm a physical therapist. I was clueless. I didn't even know what a physical therapist did, although I, I had mm-hmm. physical therapy at 15. Mm-hmm. Um, I was clueless. So uh, Bronwyn was like, um, well, you have, I was stretching her, her shoulder or her hamstring out. I was like, oh, you have good hands. You, you, have you ever considered a career in physical therapy? Mm-hmm. And I said, no. Where would I start? So she said, the first thing you would do is uh, volunteer to see if you actually want to go to school for it. Mm-hmm. So Bronwyn at the time was the chief therapist at Rusk Institute. And I didn't understand what that meant, but she had a very large position at a very large institution, well-known institution. Um, Rusk Institute, people have flown in from all over the world for treatment. And uh Shortly after getting my forensic psychology degree, actually a month after, uh, I started volunteering at vestibular rehab. It was um, in Rusk? In Rusk. Mm-hmm. Um, highly specialized part of, part of physical therapy, mm-hmm. which most of the therapists in vestibular told me, hey, you have to, you have to go somewhere else to get a taste of different what, therapy. therapy. Yeah, because yeah. this is very highly specialized. Right. But uh, while at... Rusk, uh, I, I saw a lot of, at the time, it seemed like there were miracles. Um, I saw a lot of people in bad shape after strokes, after having, you know, acoustic um, tumors removed, people that had all type of balance issues. I saw a lot of um, positive changes, and I saw how thankful they were to the therapist. And it, it was a game changer. It, it, it made me say, hey, I'm going to go back to school. So what that entailed, similar to Lee's story, is I had to take some prerequisites. Um, At the time, you know, I had my bachelor's. I was training pretty much full-time, volunteering at Rusk. Um, I started working with some private clients at the time, and then that was a big boost um, economically for me because I was like, wow, this is um, triple the money, quadruple the money that I'm making with uh, the health club, and I had a lot of mentors around the way, mm-hmm. uh, along the way. Um, similar to Lee, I always sought out some of the top trainers in the, in the club, and they would always give me, you know, tips and tricks. And and again, they would just had a lot of guidance through that. Uh, so I went back to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took prerequisites at Hunter College because I thought it would be um, convenient. Um, it wound up being very tough um, because of the form, the, the structure of Hunter. Um, midway through taking those exams, I um, I prematurely applied to Hunter College for um, PT, for PT mm-hmm. and I was denied because I was uh, uncompetitive. My my grades were too low, and I had too many credits in progress. Ah, uh, okay. So um, well, that's not a bad sign. If if they weren't outright like saying like no, you you don't qualify, but they're like you got. You got to wait a little longer. Yeah, well, non-competitive, I thought, well, you know, it was a nice way of saying, no, no, you know, you're not getting in. But that um, that actually spurred, you know, that kind of focused me even more Yeah. Uh, because I said, you know, this is what I want to do. Along the time, I volunteered at vestibular rehab. I volunteered at the general acute rehab as well as the inpatient rehab at Rusk. Um and in that time, Bronwyn moved out, uh, moved on from NYU and opened up 
Madison Avenue Rehab. Mm. And uh, I was able to see a brand new outpatient orthopedic clinic from day one. Oh, wow. So that was another motivator because I, I now saw four different realms of physical therapy. Um, and I saw how each differed. But the common link amongst that was there was a licensed physical therapist. And they were helping others with highly specialized well, specialized knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, most importantly, just really connecting with patients and bringing them out of whatever situation they were in, for the most part. Now, Madison Avenue Rehab, that, that was specifically like outpatient orthopedics? Yes, outpatient mm. orthopedics. And she kind of partnered up with a chiropractor, oh. uh, Mr. Andrew Marcus oh, right. and Craig Antel. Okay. So um, they, I think, started it up, and they had PT, Cairo. And then I had then no idea they were all. OD, yeah, and an OD. Okay. Um, so they, um, so I was there for a while. Um, during that time, I fell out. Well, I didn't volunteer anymore. I was going full swing with prerequisites mm-hmm. in school. Uh, but it took me a long time. I mean, I started my prerequisites in 2000. Wow. And we got into school 2007. Correct. Jeez. Man. So I took a year. I mean, I, I went two years, three years, didn't do so well with my sciences, had to retake some courses at LaGuardia Community College, uh-huh. uh, took the GREs, did very poorly due to a, 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 a loss. Uh, I knew mm. a kid that got killed. Um, a day before I took my GREs, mm. I lost a... Um, a friend of mine that worked at New York Sports Club, wow. and I totally bombed uh, my GREs. And then after, right after I bombed the GREs, I said, I- I'm going to take a break. Um, that coincided with starting my own personal training business, and I was doing very well uh, with training private clients. I-, I had, you know, I had a good amount of clients. and, and a you good had private, and you were doing New York Sports Club. Yes. And New York Sports Club, at this point, I was like an independent contractor. Okay. Um, I was kind of down. Sh- I wasn't there much, mm-hmm. um, but I used it for home base for my workouts, you know, shower, <laughs> lunch. You know, it was basically where I would kind of collect myself, but most of my business was, on the, was outside. Okay. Uh, anyway. Fast forward 2007, actually 2006, was a significant shift in my life. Um, while writing my essay to get into school, I found out my father passed. Mm-hmm. And that was um, that was a very challenging time for me and my family. But it was, you know, it, it totally strengthened my focus on getting into school. Um, you know... The initial two months after losing my father, I really questioned everything, right? But I kept going. I kept mm-hmm. pushing through. I, I took my – at the time, I was taking my prerequisites um, and just really focused on getting into school. So I kind of used that as um, – how could I put it? These, these life events, yeah, oh, they, they a, just kind of put you on that path. Yeah, you know, it was just basically – Indefinitely. Yeah, there was nothing going to stop me to get into school. and. Yeah. You know, that uh, summer, shit, I, th- I think I found out the summer we got into school. I remember, yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, I, I, it was very, it was two months before school started. Mm. Um, I got a call and I got a letter. Um, and that summer was, a, it was a dark time because I was still dealing with a lot. Mm-hmm. But 
Very exciting time, August 28, 2007. <laughs> um, started, that's where I met Lee. Mm. Um, Lee and I, you know, went through school, and, and I had to um, make a huge sacrifice going in school because I had to give up 50 to 75% of my business, mm-hmm. uh, handed out clients to other trainers, held on to uh, flexible clients mm-hmm. that... Um, that were able to work with my schedule. And to this day, I still have a handful of the same clients. Um, and what can I say? I mean, we, we got through school. Um, you had some good support. We had some good support. So throughout my um, throughout my uh, graduate school experience, I, I at the time, she was my girlfriend, but she's my wife now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a very supportive girlfriend at the time, uh, my wife, Carolina. Uh, she, yeah, she stuck through through with me through some tough times because uh, graduate school ain't no picnic. Oh, it was <laughs> it was uh, some troubling times in graduate school. There was a lot of close calls in terms of um, just keeping up, you know. And and Lee and I were very unique in the sense that we worked through we worked through college, mm-hmm. and a lot of the guys and girl, ladies and gentlemen, that were in school, that were um, they didn't work. No. They were, I mean, it, we were somewhat out of the norm. You know, usually what, you know, from what our understanding was, right after undergrad, you would jump into PT, uh, a PT program like that. And we were in a doctorate program, you know, it had certain requirements to keep you in. And um, for to keep their accreditation, they would have to get rid of certain people who were falling below a, G, a certain B, a GPA. So we not only had to hold a high GPA, but we would also have to keep up with each semester we were it was like 23 to 26 credits, whatever it was. And then when we started to do our affiliations or our internships, that was an added stress, which was incredible. Um, but needless to say, it was through our support and you know, we were able to maintain and, and do well. Yeah. Um, I, I would, uh, to, to kind of backtrack a little, yeah. Lee, Lee has a, definitely a back, more of a background in strength and conditioning. I would say my initial entry point into fitness was was general fitness mm-hmm. um most of my clients at the time had little or no experience with fitness mm-hmm. um the few that did definitely wanted to take it to the next level but there was a lot of people that um didn't that fitness was new to them and it, whether it was whether they were 16 or at 1.84 mm-hmm. um you know you, you they they had no real experience so i was their first entry point into fitness and throughout my fitness career you know from kind of a bodybuilding isolated approach back and buys back and buys yeah legs abs calves all all the yeah (laughs) Uh, throughout that experience you know I I acquired a lot of different information whether it was the good old uh, ABC of uh, certifications ACE NASM pre-postnatal, mm-hmm. some kickboxing, there was a joke. Um, but throughout that, I was inspired by a lot of people within the fitness industry, some of which inspired Lee as well. Um, yeah. Was it Carlos Santana? Oh, yeah. So one of my first, I'll never forget, just to talk about the fitness industry for a second, uh, one of my first, uh, I wouldn't even call it a seminar, but they came to us at Equinox, mm. Mike Boyle. Mike Boyle, he's still he, in action. I mean, he was like, he had, I don't know if he still has, but he had a connection with Equinox at the time where they would, 
he would come and do seminars, do talks at different locations. Um, but I think he did a two-day thing with us, and it was awesome what he opened up with. <laughs> he, <laughs> the first slide he had, he says, all of you, myself included, were victims of misinformation. Hmm. <laughs> uh, very true. I yeah. loved it because he, cause he that, that grabbed you right away. You're like, what is he going to talk about? What, misinformation of what? And then sure enough, he talked about all this misinformation and fitness that continues on to this day, which wow. we'll, we'll be chatting about a lot because that is something that we want to at least give out some uh, clarification on and hopefully demystify certain things, if not marginally disrupt the, inform- <laughs> the information that's getting into your ears about poor fitness information. Anyway, so he he explained that, you know, just the, he took the example of the heart rate BS that you see on all the cardio equipment in the fat burning zone and the cardio, it's all, it's all shit. It, right. it doesn't mean anything. Right. Um, but he, he was one of the first ones. That, that my next influencer was Paul Check. Hmm. Oh my God. I went to, I saw him a couple of times and he was another one who kind of grabbed me and he started to say things that, um, or he grabbed my attention. He started to say things that completely turned around my world of what I knew what was real, what wasn't. Talked about how regular cow milk wasn't really good for your bones. It actually leached calcium from your bones. I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, you <laughs> see those commercials, it got milk, and everyone wants to talk about how good it is for your bones. Right. Uh, but, yeah, he and he gave information on strength training, functional movement. He was using physio balls that, you know, no one's ever used physio balls and then medicine balls with Carlos Santana. Um you know, th- those are huge influencers uh, in terms of my training career. Um, yeah. And then there was other ones that uh, I- I've taken before through the Perform Better Summit and all this other stuff. Yes, uh, Perform Better. I took, yeah, I took a lot of courses. I mean, initially I started, my main source of information as a teenager was muscle and fakeness, muscle and fitness. <laughs> right? Muscle and fakeness. Um, what was it? Uh, men's health. Um, all those... Yeah. All of the, I mean, it was mystical. Yeah, and it was work. I, I mean, that's when I was sixteen, seventeen. My buddy had a a pullout for men's health, and we did that for four months. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it, it things have changed quite a bit, um, and hopefully, in future podcasts, we could go over, I guess, the latest and greatest of fitness now, and I guess what influences us, and it has changed tremendously. Huge. Yeah. Um, definitely, I, I could credit Lee Man to bringing a lot of information. Uh, in graduate school, he he put a lot of us on Laura bars, which you probably don't even need anymore. I don't. Uh, no, right. I, I changed don't. on that one. <laughs> Laura okay. bars, um, kombucha, fire yogurt, fire yogurt's another one, and um, what else? Fitness one. Well, kettlebells. That that was later. That was later. Yeah. But um, what can I say? Uh, it, it was an interesting. I mean, the journey continues. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was uh, it was a long long haul, and I'm I'm very thankful for all the people along the way. Whether it be my wife now, <laughs> uh, my friends and family, my classmates, my clients. I mean, it, there's it goes it goes on and on. It, it could be as simple as a sentence, uh, yeah. a, a words of encouragement to someone that was you know constantly in our corners. But um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting, I, you know the when the people that we work with, let's say, um, you know, where we are now, we get in from, or we, we get a lot of questions because if we, we, we let people know we have experience in the training world and we're now physical therapists, a lot of times physical, uh, sorry, trainers will come up to us and be like, listen, I'm, I'm considering 
this is a career. What do you think? And it's usually a, it, it, it's a, it's on one phrase. We usually say it depends, you know, it depends right. on many factors, but the fact that, uh, we're not the norm when it comes to the, uh, the typical path. Like we didn't mm-hmm. jump from undergrad. We didn't know exactly what we wanted to do. We didn't go from A to B to C to get through school. We kind of bounced around a little bit, but we did get through through our support, through uh, our hustle. Um, a lot of hustle. Yeah, a lot uh, of hustle. mostly bit, hustle actually. Yeah, a, a lot of and in that fitness industry in New York is not easy. If any any trainer that that either maintains a career as a trainer or in fitness is doing a lot of work. Yeah, and it's um, a, it's interesting. I mean, it's um to maintain a career in fitness has not little to do. You know. Your personal appearance make a little makes a difference. Mm. Your knowledge makes a little difference, but mm. it, the hustle and the ability to connect mm. with patients and and there's a lot of factors that go into it. But there is a, a little bit of an it factor, like mm. any career, and um, the it's just tough. It's a five ten percent of I would uh, say. Yeah, that was I was I was talking to Eric about this uh, before we started the podcast. I started with ten trainers at Equinox, and I remember at orientation they were not shy by saying the statistics. There was, they were like, well, you know, out of ten, you'll I think they said uh, five. You won't see five of you in right. six months or something like that. Oh, yeah. Only two of us, we we made it through the entire training, just the basic tier one. The rest, everybody, eight of them left. Um, and that, that's the thing with, with, with training. Some people will treat it like a bartending job. They'll say, mm. like, well, I'm an actor. I'm an actress. Uh, it's got flexible hours. I'll be able to do it here and there. So they're not going to last. They usually don't last all the way through as a full personal trainer. Now, of course, there's a, exceptions. But um, if you really want to be a strength conditioning co- a coach, a fitness trainer, uh, a teacher, whatever it may be, then you kind of have to have a full investment, but also you have to take a little bit more than a bartending job. It's something that you right. you got to hustle a little bit, connect with people, yeah. and then you have to care for people too. To build um, to build off of um, 2010, we graduated. Mm. We also took a, a bit of a different route. Um, while in school, we had a lot of mentors throughout the way. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our instructors were amazing. They were all practicing clinicians. And we, well, both of us, I would say, took a similar path. We had a couple of experiences with outpatient orthopedics, and we, I knew pretty much my last year of graduate school that I wanted to be in an outpatient clinic. We started taking classes, continuing education classes while we were in school. Right. So I was lucky enough to take a NIOMP course that we'll go into later and had lunch with the instructor and I was with two of my professors. And just to have that interaction with these um, world-renowned clinicians was was very was motivating. Um, I was right there at the source of this amazing information and I wasn't even a graduate yet. Mm-hmm. Um, upon graduating school, uh, I took a little time off um, picked up some private clients, and uh, was very persistent. Lee at the time, and I'll let him elaborate, mm. but he was working part-time at a very uh, cool and uh, cutting-edge clinic at the, uh, for its time. Um, right when we finished school? Yep. Lee put me on to a course um, that was being held by one of the owners, Luke Bongiorno, mm-hmm. and Luke and what's Chris, Chris Johnson. Johnson. Uh, Who's still practicing today? Yes, he is. <laughs> he's out in Washington. He's an incredible, incredible physical therapist. Um, he's uh, 
a renowned triathlete. Trains runner. He's a courses on running. He does a lot of continuing education. He's great. Yeah, that that class that um, Lee put me on, um, which I pay. Uh, I, can't remember, I remember paying that. <laughs> you? Uh, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. So of course. Well, so anyway, pay for that course. It was amazing. I had um, both Luke and and Chris um, had a great two day course. Yeah. They were like I said the dream my, team. Yeah, and I said to myself, "Wow, I'd love to work in this place." So I grabbed Luke's number. And I was persistent. I asked him if he needed work. He said no. Hmm. I, go, I passed my boards. I let him know. He said, oh, that's great. Hopefully, at some point, we could bring you on. Hmm. And um, I was very persistent. I really wanted to be at that clinic based on what Lee was telling me, based on what I felt while I was at the course. Hmm. And um, shortly thereafter, um, February 2011, I began working at New York Sports Med part-time. Uh, where I stood for what, four or five years until, mm. you know, that, that was a great run there. You know, when we were acquired, there was a bit of um, uncertainty. Um, there was a lot of change in the company, but overall I had a long span at this one clinic. And l- I was lucky enough to be at Union Square New York Sports Med at the beginning, well, when it opened right. to, to some extent. And I was able to see a clinic be built from two clinicians to this probably how many clinicians there now? Oh my god, now probably at 14, 15 more than that. I think close to well, now I mean, as the company, it's got to be almost 30. I mean, wow. there's a lot now, so yeah, okay. seeing that growth, um, was pretty amazing and it was not a <laughs> was not a smooth ro- ride, mm. but I'm thankful for that experience. Um, more recently, um, I would say in August of, let's say, two and a half years ago, three mm-hmm. years ago, um, I I started managing um, the clinic during this um, transitional time, and it was a, a great experience. Well, it was a learning experience, sometimes great, sometimes not so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but it, it taught me a lot, and I guess where I am now, um, mm-hmm. right now I am working for myself. Um started a company called Integrated PT Squared, you know, PT being personal training or physical training <laughs> and uh, physical therapy and, and kind of combining both. Uh, currently, I am renting space in Midtown on 53rd and Madison, as well as a couple of other spots within the city um, and, and balance between training some of my what I call lifers, mm-hmm. um, and now taking on new outpatient orthopedic clinic, uh, outpatient patients, I would say. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, combining fitness and training, which has been going on for a long time. Yeah. I'm going to give it over to Lee to. Yeah, where we are. Yeah, so the, uh, right after school, uh, so in school we had we had completed. Four affiliations and an affiliation. If if you don't know what it is, it's it's like an internship. But the key that I think is a, the missing key that the layperson doesn't know is we have to be a physical therapist on these things. I mean that's that's something super important. Where you don't pass them unless we re- we fulfill the requirements, and usually it goes from like beginner to the hardest by the end. So right. the first time you go on your first affiliation, we had our first one was six weeks. You're a, a very much of a newbie. You're doing a lot of observation. 
you might treat a couple patients here and there. You write a lot of notes. You do a lot of documentation. You learn about that. And obviously, it depends on the setting. Um, and then so on and so forth. Then your next one, you have a little bit more expectations. You have to treat about, let's say, 50% of the caseload. Next one after that, 75. <laughs> next one after that, almost 100%. So my last affiliation, which was 16 weeks, was underneath Luke Bongiorno at New York Sports Medicine. Wow. So I was lucky enough to do that. Luke said that I was the first and last full-time student they ever had. <laughs> and he says that with a smile because he knows that it was it was challenging, you know, on both of our parts. I mean, it was challenging because they were very busy at the time. Um, and also managing a student is very, very hard, especially for 16 weeks. I mean, that's – if you're – even nine weeks, that's a hard one to do, but Eight 16 weeks. weeks. Um, anyway, so I was lucky enough he, he – uh, I. As I worked there, they offered me a part-time gig right after I, I finished, and I was able to. I was basically doing forty some odd hours a week as part-time because there was a lot of people I was filling in for a lot of patients, and then uh, I, I made a good impression. Um, and they they were in a certain situation at the time. They they couldn't immediately give me a full-time position, although they wanted me to. They wanted to. They they I had to wait like you know three more months, something like that. Something came up. I actually took another gig. Because um, I had just passed my boards, uh, of course the student loans were starting to kick in because it's six months after graduation. Um, so I took this other full-time gig and I was there for about three months. It was a high-volume clinic. I was treating three to four patients an hour, no lunch. Uh, saw saw a lot of uh, outpatient orthopedic patients, and then from from there I moved to another clinic and I worked there for about nine months. Again, another outpatient orthopedics a little less high volume but it was kind of the same there wasn't it was like 20 minute treatments um there was a little bit more of a, a lunch situation so i had a, a more of a break it was a little less stressful and then uh after that nine months that's when new york force med came back and they said hey we have that opening if you're still interested so it took a little longer than they anticipated but uh i grabbed it and, and i went right back to where I did my last affiliation. I started working for them, I think it was technically 2012. Eric was already there. Uh, and they were shifting at well, that point. They were yes. shifting from two patients an hour to three patients an hour, and that was a huge deal. So they had all the benefits that they had in New York Sports Medicine originally, which included incredible physical therapists, really uh, world-renowned. Like They had all these Australian physical therapists who uh, there was one gentleman named Ben Gold. He has taught all over the world, cervigenic headaches, uh, neck pain, stuff like that, and he, he also run. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. He also runs a. Uh, he actually runs a clinic. Uh, he runs a. He runs three clinics. Uh, mm. One here in New York, uh, which is a home care clinic mm. where he does he. He subcontracts the work. Yeah. Uh, he has another one in Melbourne, and I think two in Melbourne, one targeted towards moms, mm. and the other just a general clinic. But, yeah, Ben Gold was a, a big mentor at the time. 100%. Incredible guy. Uh, again, traditionally trained in Australia. Again, there's a uh, – not again, we haven't said it yet, but in Australia there's a um, a far – there's a bigger emphasis on high-value care, a.k.a. manual therapy, Great evaluation skills and actually treating physical therapists almost like physicians. So they're they're not secondary uh, clinicians. They're the primary people you go see to when you have something orthopedic going on. So or musculoskeletal, as <laughs> Australians would say. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I was there and uh, I jumped into the three patients an hour situation and it was. Hmm. 
it was insane because you go from this clinic that was busy already with two patients an hour and you jump into the three patients an hour, you're seeing so many patients in a week, but you had the benefit of a, you were surrounded by great clinicians. You had somewhat of okay support administratively. It was somewhat manageable. Um, but over the course of maybe a year, was it a year when they changed it back? About a year, they they switched back to half-hour treatments. Half-hour treatments. And then, so we, Eric and I were there the whole time in terms of that going back and forth. And as Eric said, they were acquired in 2015. And at that time, or a couple months before their acquisition, I was promoted to the site director at one of their locations. And around the same time, uh, Eric was promoted to a site director at his location, which was Union Square. Uh, so we were the managers of our respective locations during the acquisition, and it was a huge shift. It was, um, you know, a whole change in the the treatment model. We now all of a sudden, instead of having just physical therapists there and trainers, we had a physical therapist. We had PTAs or physical therapy assistants, which is different from trainers, and we had chiropractors. And so we had to, not to go into extreme detail, but we now had to integrate almost everything uh, from the old system to this new system. And we had to keep everybody happy and not, not you know, if, there was a lot of people who was un, were unsure, including ourselves, unsure of if we wanted to stay with the company and um, wanted to see this through because it was very different. And also we were getting a lot of uh, information that was saying that things were going to change drastically we a lot of uncertainty anyway so we we went through that to uh you know uh, together and it was really tough but w- what that did with us was it gave us a new perspective on our field because we now saw behind the curtain as i like to say because we learned about billing in-depthly and we learned about uh productivity we learned about um Utilization. Utilization and how many uh, units have to be, you know, per hour, per per clinician or what they like to say, per provider, which we hate. We hate that term because a provider completely uh, decimates the idea that you're actually involving yourself with a person. You're just providing like some a sort service. of benign service to the person, which is not true. We're, we're clinicians. And uh, anyway, so that's a whole other side thing. But it gave us a new thing. And so that new perspective really challenged our our beliefs of physical therapy our our idea of it and as for myself and i think eric felt this the same is we really had to make a decision do we still want to do this do we still want to go through with this uh meaning that now that we see kind of how uh a company like new york sports med that uh was primarily uh, owned by clinicians and also being pushed in a direction that was would further our industry now has shifted to possibly motivations other than clinician uh, motivators other than clinical and push it in another direction right. uh, but that was the norm as we were learning and then we saw all these other overtime all these other clinics that were owned by clinicians starting to fail or not to fail sorry they started to sell kind of give themselves up to these these corporate entities and then that was a reality check for us. So we want to also give our perspective on that because I think it's important if you're looking to get into this field it should be known because this it's a reality. No one sat us down and said this is what's happening or this is what's going to happen and this is what is the reality of our field. We were sat down and told like you're going to treat patients, you're going to be somewhat autonomous, you're going to be able to um 
explain and uh, educate patients so they can help themselves. You're basically going to help people. No one said, you're going to be limited by insurance. You're not going to be able to treat this person because you don't have the right to do it. They're going to have to go back to their doctor. They're going to have to go get a piece of paper saying that now you could see physical therapy. Uh, Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that changes the game. Well, that, that, that really shifts what what I could say to the patient, what, how, how much I, how much time I'm going to be able to spend with the patient. That was what we were talking about: two minute, or sorry, two treatments per hour versus three treatments per hour. This, all that stuff. This is all based, by the way. Um, what we're talking about is all based on trying to survive mm-hmm. um, in an insurance-based reimbursement model, mm-hmm. which um, which is one way to go about. Um, stuff from a business perspective, mm-hmm. uh, but one that even in, while we were in school, we were um, it was clearly um, clearly spoken about how reimbursement rates are decreasing mm-hmm. and overhead costs are increasing. The rent keeps going up, and so do your salaries. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, you know, something's got to give. And uh, again, this is all based on an insurance model. The other mm-hmm. model, which does exist here in New York City as well as, you know, California and Miami and any other places where there's pockets of um, dispendable income is a cash-based model where, you know, you dictate what kind of what's going to be given to the patient. Um, But I agree with Lee in that, you know, nobody told us out of school that, you know, we would think that we're somewhat autonomous. And and that's one thing during this acquisition – speaking to an HR representative at the time that's no longer there, Hmm. uh, he said, hey, you know, no one's kind of, no one's going to encroach on your autonomy. You guys are autonomous. So there was a lot, there was a lot of misinformation out there. But just, when you work with a large company, large companies have large policies. Large policies often don't match uh, the clinical needs uh, of a clinic or even a patient. Um, so mm-hmm. these are all issues that, um, as a new grad, uh, they're clueless to yeah, all of a, these it's factors. It's important, I think, as a new grad to know because yes, yes, they yes. will be highly taken advantage of if you're not well-educated. Yes. And, that, and that's a sad thing. And, and that's like, apparently business, which is, which is kind of crappy because you went through really hard times to get through PT school. And nobody knows that better than other physical therapists. Right, right. And, if you, uh, you you usually say this to a lot of the new grads, just remember why you got in it, because you right. could lose sight of that real quick when someone's like, ah, well, we're going to take that away from you. We're going to take that away from you. We'll take this away from you. But you could still treat the patients. Yeah, you oh, see, really? that, that, <laughs> that brings me up to my uh, a topic, another topic where mm-hmm. why, um, why I parted ways with the company. I mean, mm-hmm. I had a lot of um, great relationships, friendships, uh, professional relationships, with the people that I worked with for over seven years. Um, but uh, things changed in my life. Um, my my wife and I had a little boy, John. And mm. with uh, little John, I realized that, you know, time was limited. I mean, I always knew time. Time became very limited. Mm. And dealing with, um, you know, bureaucracy and the politics and, and just dealing with patients, I felt like um, I... Mm, felt like I needed to to I needed more flexibility mm-hmm. and um, I needed more flexibility to be with my family and just kind of get out of this um, space of having to deal with these other things other than treating my patient all I want to do is treat my patient right. uh, I just want to <laughs> treat my patient train my client 
and and call it a day. And and unfortunately, when you work in a large clinic, um, it's not as simple as treating your patient. There's no. policies, there's procedures, there's that this stuff. Um, and another thing, I don't know if Lee, I'm not speaking fully on this, but <laughs> in the two years that um, we were there, I was um, always uh, aggressive with continuing education. Yeah. And unfortunately, with all these organizational changes, education kind of went to the to the wayside. Yeah, to the back burner. And, um, you know, that's that's just not the way. I mean, even in the fitness industry, someone told me you should spend 10 to 15 percent of your income on education in the fitness in this every year. Yeah. This is within the fitness industry. And this was almost 20 years ago. Let's say 17 years ago, we're one of the top trainers. Fast forward into physical therapy, it's no different. No. You I think it's even more important. More, more important because of how research is changing the field and how we're realizing once which was common practice 10 years ago now is, is, is seen as almost, could be considered negligent. I don't want to go that route. But, you know, well, some, some of, yeah, some some of the of stuff. Some of it is. I mean, it definitely, all right, let's say if you have... Uh, you know, it's a huge thing right now. We'll we'll go into extreme depth in another podcast, but taking the treatments that can be done on a patient now versus treatments that were done in 1985 that have been shown uh, uh, completely as ineffective in right. terms of the science, in terms of what it's actually doing and time spent on it, everything like that. So if you're still doing those ineffective treatments low-value treatments, and that's your primary way of treating your patients, I, I would call that borderline negligent right, because right. you now are in the field. You should be – you're responsible for keeping up with the field. Right. You're respon- you have a license. You went to school. The doctor is sending you the patient usually, unless it's direct access, um, to treat this patient the best way that you know how. If the best way you know how is from treatments back in 1985, <laughs> then you need to either – Pivot and go somewhere else. You like go go to another field, or go get some continuing education. Except the fact things are changing. I mean, this is this is something that's not one thousand percent easy. I understand this. I mean, I, the, our beliefs are challenged every day with things changing. But that doesn't mean that you can't go out aggressively and do this. So, you know, going back with Eric saying is that right after, out of school, even in school, we were taking Con Ed, and right out of school. Uh, I continued both the, the training con ed and the PT con ed. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I, I got my strong first kettlebell certification in 2014. I think that that certification was completely invaluable. I mean, that, that gave me so many tools to work with re- rehabilitation, work with uh, strength training, work with everybody. I, I, I was lucky enough to assist in another certification a couple of years later. Um, I also took uh, an incredible certification through Dr. Andrew Spina, the functional range conditioning, the mobility specialist cert. I'm definitely going to take more of his courses because those things are invaluable. Again, these are things that people are compiling the newest, most recent evidence, information, and creating their systems and and creating effective systems. Um, Now... You know, it's really unfortunate because now I'm still with, uh, you know, I'm still working part time, and I am no longer a uh, site director, um, because you know I, I found that there are other things that can be done with my career, and I, and like Eric said, you come to a realization once you see all these things behind the curtain, you're like, well, 
I'd rather go down a different path. And I've seen other clinicians do this, and they actually have complete businesses where they're providing high-value care, and they're able to do this in a setting where they could treat somebody for 45 minutes, and they can go get education, and they're reinforced to go get education. Actually, their clinics are the ones that are hosting these educations. Right. Uh, education seminars. So that's where it should be going. You should be keeping up with your current feel, field, being able to provide the highest value care possible. It's it's not easy. It, it's, it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of reading, takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time away from family and, and maybe your vacations, uh, if you have vacations. And um, but that's just what we do, and, and that's what we enjoy doing. We enjoy treating patients the best way we can. We, we enjoy bringing someone through their injury uh, the most effective, fastest way possible so they don't have to stop playing sports or stop running around with their kids or stop doing this, stop doing that. Yeah, I might, I'm going to so, – not to cut you off, no. but um, if, if you're a practicing physical therapist listening to this <laughs> and not enjoying – your job, mm. maybe it's time to look for another job. Yeah, because people come to us for um, for help. Mm-hmm. They come to us for answers. They come to us for conf- they come to us for a lot. But if one doesn't enjoy what he's doing, or fem- uh, he or she, he or she <laughs> doesn't enjoy it, it might be time to move on. I mean, one of the thing my experience in the, in some of the hospitals that I did affiliation with. Um, Mount Sinai and uh, Bellevue, uh, I, I there was a split. I saw some amazing clinicians that were doing amazing things and, and making an impact in others' lives. Mm-hmm. And I, unfortunately, I saw a lot of people checking in and checking out of a job. And, and I really don't think that anybody in a healthcare field uh, or has an interface with the patient on a daily basis should should not enjoy what they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have days, not all, I'm not saying that come to the table, you know, bright eye, bushy tail every day, but, you know, know that that other person on the other side is looking for help, mm-hmm. irregardless of where they are, what field, what, um, what setting you're in. Mm-hmm. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, find something else. Right. I think it's super important that this is, uh, Eric and I've talked about this before. Um, I think a huge mistake, and no company in particular that we're talking about, but a huge mistake as a theme, I think, um, uh, executive officers make when they try to run a physical therapy practice or anything in the medical industry is they create or they base that model on a transaction-based business. Yes. A transaction-based business, it works fantastic for Amazon it works fantastic for anything that you're just churning out, you know, products that could be put together, that could be shipped out, maybe uh, a sandwich, whatever it is. <laughs> it, it, it works fantastic <laughs> for that. But if you start to uh, try to apply that to relationship-based business, it's not going to work. It's not going to work because th- the transaction is not what's keeping the business going. Huh. The relationship is what's keeping the business going between the patient or, you know, the group of patients and the clinician, the clinician and the patient. And how that relationship is built is a lot of work. And it's not just them coming and say, hi, you got, your, you got knee pain. I'm going to get you better. Let's go sit down and do A, <laughs> B, and C. No, that's not how it works. It's more like, hi, I'm a clinician. 
let me introduce myself. We're going to get to know each other. And then you're going to let me know what's going on with you. You're going to tell me your story. And I'm going to let you tell you your story. And so I'm going to see what I could do after you tell your story. I'm going to assess and evaluate based on my knowledge and skills that I learned over the time, whatever it may be, in school, out of school, with other patients, compare and contrast, and use that assessment to give that information back to the patient. And then when I give that information back to the patient, then they have to understand that. It's not a passive thing. It's not something that they're told. It's something that they need to understand. So that takes a lot of time and effort. It's not a transaction. It's yeah, a relationship. It's a relation. and, and that relationship, again, to, to build on what Lee is saying here, is the patient, patient's even even a referring doctor, um, that trust that the doctor has in saying, oh, you know, Eric, he's a great therapist. What, what What is a great therapist? Well, his patient came back and said, hey, I'm feeling much better. Mm -hmm. Eric was great. He explained everything to me. Mm -hmm. um, he gave me hope. He gave whatever That's whatever huge. it is, and, and a lot of this stuff is, as Lee said, it's it, it's not cut and dry. Right. You, some of it you could you could um, identify. There are a lot of unidentified factors that uh, affect. Later podcasts will go into further detail on mm -hmm. on what the research is on that. But mm -hmm. it, it's uh, relationships, patients, mm -hmm. doctors, and not even doctors. It could be other referral sources. Those referral sources could be family members, other trainers. It's, right. it's endless. Yeah, that, that's endless. how it should work. It, it, there's, it, there's always a good sign when you see a patient who's like, I was referred from so-and-so who was referred from so-and-so. And, there, you know, that's what... I remember watching that movie, um, The Social, Social Network, uh, about Facebook. I remember mm. that. And there was this whole back and forth about what actually... what, what Facebook was. And... So I, I think there was a, a line in the movie, I don't know how accurate it was, but basically uh, Zuckerberg was trying to create uh, uh, an area where if, let's say, your friend that you're friends with on Facebook likes to go to a shoe store and see this movie, then you were recommended because you like that friend to go see that movie or go to that shoe store. Right, right. Same kind of thing. Like you, you have in, in New York, especially in medicine, you don't want to just go to any old doctor. You don't want to go to any old physical therapist. You want to go to someone that might be kind of cutting the fat or trimming the fat somewhere. Like they're, they're getting through other um, bad experiences. And so you might talk to someone you trust and they had physical therapy. And for that person to recommend a physical therapist or a doctor is going to take a lot because they had a successful experience. They had a good experience. They had a trustful experience with this person. They're not, like if I were... Experience. Yeah, and it, it, if you were to ask me... Do you have a doctor that I'm not going to send you to someone who like, you know, didn't even see me for more than two minutes or whatever. I'm, I'm going to send you someone who actually helped me, like, you know, that, our dentist. That's uh, another um, <laughs> just, <laughs> just came to it. <laughs> speaking of the devil, um, Lee referred me to my dentist. Uh, that's, 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 right. that's funny. Did, did you hear the story about who the, our dentist? Yes. No. What happened? I'll just side note. Well, we don't want to waste time. Um <laughs> I was there. We love morning. our dentist. Uh, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. But uh, what you just said just struck a chord. Uh, experience, you yes. know, people, whether it's fitness or physical therapy, or or in many respects, different service, different. I think physical therapy is part of the service industry. Um, yes, we have a medical background. Yes, we have all this training. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it we are providing a service, and and a lot of therapists 
don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. They see it as, hey, I know A, B, and C, you're the patient. And there's this, this dialogue of um, almost uh, condescending uh, in many sense. So See it every day. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately. I'm surrounded by it. But, so, but uh, you, you know, the, the experience, people are coming. I always say, I mean, this is like, who knows, this could be a integrated PT advertisement, but um, it's not just a workout. It's not just a treatment. It's an experience. Yeah. And, and that that's what keeps either people coming back mm-hmm. or that referrals chain. Right. Um, that's huge. But the experience, I mean, and, and it's... It, it's hard. It's a, it's a very complex thing that takes um, time and training and, most importantly, experience. You just mm-hmm. got to hit the floor, you know, and, and make the mistakes and say the wrong things or, or do the wrong treatment or have someone flare. Whatever it is. I mean, we've had... Um, we've Fortunately had, and unfortunately, that's happened to us for many, many years. Yeah, so. Whether it's, uh, you know, one too many lunges or jumps, <laughs> whatever it is, or, uh, you know, one too many, I don't know. Mobs. Mobs. I don't know. Glides, yeah, clamshells. I don't know. <laughs> and that's the other thing too. It's like uh, you, this is what uh, you know to tie in a little bit of research is. Yes, fortunately and unfortunately, the quality that you're going to get from in our field uh, from a physical therapist it depends on many factors. One of which is the amount of time that they have in the clinic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you do the math from 2010, and we're seeing from two to three sometimes four patients an hour. We've seen thousands upon thousands of patients up to this point. We're 2018. And then before that, we were working with hundreds and hundreds of clients that were all sorts of, you know, I think one of my oldest clients ever was 96 years old. We were working on strength training, which is incredible. Uh, One of my youngest was six. You know, we we work on the broad spectrum. And so this gives us a a very... um, a broad spectrum <laughs> to yeah. to apply these things that we learned over the years to uh, also see this too. And that's what made us an appropriate manager for our other, the new grads and some of the people who are kind of in the middle ground. Um, and we, we can kind of guide individuals through, all right, well, this most likely would work if you said this to the patient or you approached this this way. And then a lot of the times the physical therapists will listen, some of them won't, but um <laughs> This is, <laughs> this is something we continually work on every day. But, yes, it's huge. Uh, the experience part of it is huge. Uh, I think everybody's yearning for a good experience when it comes to something like medical care. They're in pain. They're not going to feel great because they now, you know, we we spoke about this before, before but they, they might have been told that they're not going to ever be able to do their preferred activity ever again, whether it be running, hiking, s- snowboarding, whatever it is. And that might not be true. Uh, so we have to sit there and we have to manage that expectation. We have to manage that information that they are given and maybe offer them something a little bit more hopeful, which is more truthful. Um, so it's it's uh, it's really important. Yeah, I think um, in future podcasts, uh, future podcasts will go into more specifics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, this first podcast was really the intro into our backgrounds, um, starting from... Uh, from five, kids. from from zero to uh, <laughs> to now, um, so um, I think that'll wrap up. Well, I don't know if you want to add up. No, anything. I think that's a good uh, a good a good, good intro. Um, some of what you heard there, we're going to be elaborating on uh, a little more intensely. Definitely. But um, signing off. All right, signing off. Thank you for listening to a few good physios. 
Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Follow us each week while we interview guests and have clinical commentary. 